Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi, friends. I'm really excited to share today's episode because in it, I get to interview two incredible authors and really cool women, Amanda Iyer Ward and Jardine LeBaire about their new novel, The Sober Lush. Jardine and Amanda share their experiences building an adventurous, soulful life, alcohol-free. And what I love about our conversation is that it's real and honest and also hopeful. I find their book and their approach to living life without alcohol both exciting and inspiring. In this episode, we touch on all the varied experiences that most women go through when deciding that drinking isn't working for them anymore. The highs and the lows, the joys and the challenges in moving from your drinking life to As Amanda says in our conversation, how sweet life is on the other side. From embracing sober travel and new experiences in Rome, in Mexico City, and in your own hometown, to the feelings of doom we all experienced in the mornings after drinking, to having early conversations with your husband or partner about what you're doing and finding the support you need, we cover it all, including Amanda and Jardine's favorite ways to live a decadent, sober life. The book is beautifully written, which is no surprise because both Jardine and Amanda are successful authors. Amanda is the author of eight novels, including the New York Times bestseller, The Jet Setters, which was also a book club pick by Reese Witherspoon, and it features a character trying to stay sober on a cruise ship. Amanda's work has been optioned for film and television and published in 15 countries. Jardine's a novelist and a screenwriter. Her novels include Here, Kitty Kitty, and White Fur. She also co-wrote a film that was just released called Endings, Beginnings, starring Shailene Woodley, whose character has just given up alcohol. Jardine is from New York and spent a decade in Austin where she became good friends with Amanda. She now lives in L.A. 
So let's dive into the conversation with Amanda and Jardine. I think you're going to love it. So hi, Jardine and Amanda. I am so excited to talk to you about your new book, The Sober Lush. It is so refreshing and important to read a book about all the joy to be found after you step away from the wine bottle. Your book is about living a decadent, adventurous, soulful life, alcohol-free. And I think it's so important because I know that the question of how will I ever have fun when I don't drink or what will I do without that like fuzzy buzz that makes everything lighter but also dim at the same time. And traveling without alcohol, it's, it's a big one that keeps so many women stuck in the drinking cycle for so long. So since this book just launched, I've read it, of course, but you're introducing it to my listeners and to the world. So will you tell me about the book? I would love to. And thank you so much for that introduction, too. We call this The Sober Lash, A Hedonist's Guide to Living a Decadent, Adventurous, Soulful Life, Alcohol-Free. So it's basically a really eccentric little book. Amanda and I have called it an ode to the technicolor, playful side of sobriety. We've also called it a roadmap. So it's a hybrid of things. It's it's a little bit of um, uh, a manifesto. It's a little bit of a collection of ideas and tips. And mainly it's meant to just evoke the... Um, the pleasures and the feelings of connection and the feelings of deliverance from the ordinary, which is something I've gotten hung up on um, to sort of like give the texture of that so that it's more real to someone who's curious about what the other side of sobriety might look like. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I first got sober the first 10 or 20 times, I thought it would be a life of deprivation. You know, I would go to meetings where I didn't know anybody, although everyone sounded like they were saying exactly what was in my brain. But then I would go to the same parties without wine. I had the same life and it felt very bleak. And in getting to know Jardine, who had been sober a little while longer and getting a taste of a sumptuous, beautiful, elegant, art-filled life where booze just didn't even have a place, it really made me realize, well, I have to rebuild my life from the ground up and it's going to be so a so much better life. And so that's what the Sober Lush is about, the things that we learned along the way about how to dismantle and rebuild your life so that you don't even want booze yeah, anymore. That's amazing. And I love how in the book, you kind of go back and forth between the concrete examples of joy and strategies to get through parties and events and your experiences in finding joy after giving up drinking, but also going back and forth between like how you felt physically, mentally, um, in the drinking cycle and early sobriety, but also your experiences quitting drinking. So why did you choose to write the book in that format? Well, it's interesting. Both of us are writers and when both of us got sober, we had agents and editors, you know, who, who thought, Oh, maybe you can write a great memoir. You know, maybe you can join the great books yeah. of literature and quit lit that we all love and love to read. And we know Sarah Heppola and her book Blackout is so incredible. And, and I tried, I thought, oh, well, okay, I'm a writer. That's what I do. But whenever I used the first person voice, it just fell apart. I didn't work. I didn't feel comfortable telling you how to do it because I really didn't know. So when Jardine and I had the idea of writing a book together and we started with the we mm -hmm. voice, all of a sudden it just fell into place. And then we thought, well, what can we do with this? It's not our individual stories. It's more a manifesto for a new life that we were kind of making up as we went. When we said, we, this glamorous, fabulous tribe, it was kind of yeah. me and Jardine. <laughs> so we, and so that voice worked. And then we sort of figured out what the book could be. And then when our agents went out with it, you know, different editors wanted it to be a cookbook or more of a narrative story or, oh my gosh. 
Casey, someone was saying like, we're going to do a mocktail oh line at Target with your faces on it. And it was like, ah, um, so figuring out what the book even was, was a large part of the process. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've talked a lot with, um, various writers who we love, you know, I just read good morning destroyer of men's souls. I don't know if you've read mm-hmm. that yet, but I feel like that was a book that built on this beautiful foundation, this new library of Quitlet. But she's talking about codependency and being the other side of an addict's um, world and life and partnership. And um, that to me was an example, like the Sober Lush, of somebody who looked at what existed already and thought, what isn't here yet? You know, what can I build or add to this growing little archive of books um and the sober lush to me came about from our conversations like what didn't we have when I was 25 yeah. what did I want to read about like what could have made a difference the memoirs were massively helpful I wish blackout had existed when I was 22 um but what I also would have loved would have been to read about how I can still go out and dance I can still go party I can still feel it exhilarated like these things I was so terrified of losing yeah. I wanted hard evidence like you can have that still and and what would it look like you know oh my gosh can we talk about perimenopause menopause and postmenopause for a minute I am 48 so if you're going through it I'm right there with you I mean hot flashes and night sweats racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at Happy Mammoth dot com with promo code hello that's happy m a m m o t h dot com and use promo code hello for 15% off your first order and also you can start that now you don't have to get to the bottom i mean i read caroline knapp's drinking a love story and i was like oh how can i not have to yes. quit you know it never occurred to me like or you could stop the battle yeah. now and start enjoying. So that's what we wanted to get across. You don't have yeah. to wait. I mean, I always say, and people people say this, it's not just me, but like your bottom is whenever you stop digging. And, you know, the question isn't, am I bad enough to quit? Because that's got all the preconceptions of nobody would quit unless you literally could not drink anymore. But is this good enough to keep going? And I feel like you guys really capture just the human aspect of, you know, your life is still pretty good and yet you feel like crap and you talk shit to yourself every morning and you don't know why you keep doing this to yourself and you're literally making yourself ill. That's enough to decide this isn't working for you or even to experiment with a hundred days without alcohol and see how good it is. Um, everything you said, my mind's going off the charts because of course, like drinking a love story was my very first book I read. And when I was like, Oh damn, do I have an issue with alcohol? And I was like hiding it on my Kindle. So my husband wouldn't see it and like opening other books after it ridiculous. So in case he looked at my Kindle, it wouldn't pop up. Like the amount of fear I had of him living with me thinking that I might think I had a problem is crazy. But I love how you talked about we because, you know, from talking to other women who are trying to quit drinking or have quit drinking, the universe, you know, our experiences are so similar and our thoughts are so similar. Like, it's not just you. Everything you said, I'm like, yes. And not only have I felt that, you know, I coach women, everybody feels that. 
When I finally went to an intake meeting at an outpatient, because that's how I finally, I would do 30 days, 30 days, 60 days, all on my own, always trying to do it on my own, furtive and private. Then I finally, my therapist was like, I know a really generous, lovely outpatient group. You will be taken care of every night on your journey to this and maybe get to the other side and stay there this time. Mm-hmm. The intake um, involved me saying, well, I'm, I'm an abnormal case. I'm not actually an alcoholic on this, on that. And he kindly explained to me what terminal uniqueness was, you know, yes. and that whole idea. I was like, oh my God, just to know that all these thoughts are like, not these crazy, um, private, I came up with this all on my own thing, but universal, that was a massive step forward for me. I wish again, when I look back, I wish I had taken that step and and heard other people's thoughts earlier. Yeah. And I would go to AA meetings that were in a really rough neighborhood of Austin. And I think I consciously chose the meetings where I could walk in and think, oh, I am not (laughs) like these people. And then these people would stand up and say exactly what was going on in my brain. And I realized this is exactly who I am. That's why I do call myself an alcoholic because in those meetings, I realize, you know, I'm exactly like these people. However, I do wish that I had had access to a body of literature or meetings or friends that would say, you know, from the very start, you really are like me, you know, other women, for example, or other super successful women and people. um, When I found the BFB, which is an online group that I love on Facebook, the Booze Free. And by the way, the episode right before this is with my best friend, Ingrid, who I met on the BFB. And it's all about finding friends in sobriety and that you don't need to be lonely. So we'll put in the show notes some information about how to find it or other groups. But yeah, it's so important. So go on. You found the BFB. So when I joined the BFB, it seemed to me to be primarily women of my age, which was incredible. So that was this great window into um, people wrestling with the same things. You know, that on the outside, I have a beautiful life with a husband and children. And on the inside, I'm falling apart. And I was surrounded by other women who drank and in ways that they considered healthy and they felt fine about it. And I was drinking in the same way and dying. Yeah. So it was wonderful to log in late at night to the BFB and talk to people. You know, I would say, I'm at a party. Everyone thinks I'm happy. I'm falling apart. And people would be right there in your pocket. We say we're in each other's pocket because it's so great. All night, painting messages from people who get it. Yeah, and that's where we met Amanda, like four years ago, which is insane. Yeah, And it is true. I mean, people are at parties or on New Year's Eve or at dinner parties, and they're just texting from the bathroom or at restaurants. And we're like, and that's a strategy. We're like, just go to the bathroom and post. <laughs> like, here's what you need to do. Yeah. And that is so cool because there are women just like you. It's so empowering to connect with them too. And it actually enables me to then sit at a dinner table with people who are living a different reality because it's really okay if some people want to drink and get hung over and they're down with that and it doesn't kind of make them go straight to meltdown as it did me. As long as I don't feel like I'm alone in the world. As long as I know that some people share my reality, it makes it more possible for me to move through this world freely and not have to be so terrified of being in a group or in a room or at a business meeting with people for whom the reality of drinking is is really, you know, fundamentally different. Yeah. And that's what the book is too. I mean, like The Vanish is about the fact that you can go to a party, you can go to any party knowing that you can just walk out. That gave me a lot of courage because I would try to pre-plan it and can it work for me? And I still do that. But I also have the knowledge that I can just walk out. And Business Drinks in Malibu is a chapter about how sometimes you are going to have to go to drinks meetings and you know how do you handle that? And I think really the key to all of those things is knowing you're not alone. We get it you can do what you need to do for yourself. The other thing, like when I realized, you know, I can drive a separate car from my husband or tell him, Hey, 
I need to leave when I need to leave. Are you cool with that? Otherwise, I'll take a separate car. I mean, this from the girl who like he used to it would be unspoken that he would drive me home from everything and I would pretty much pass out in the car on the way home because that was what I did, you know, so for him to be like, oh, wow, this is your girlfriend's and you're going to leave whenever you feel like it like that was big. Yeah. And even listening to yourself to know you want to leave. I think a lot of the time I would throw down another margarita because a voice in my head would be saying, I don't want to be here for whatever reason. I'm tired. um, I'm not interested. It doesn't feel like a good place for my kids. Um, Now I hear that voice. And if that voice says, I want to go home and eat ice cream and take a bubble bath, that's, I listen to it. That's the game changer for me. It's funny too, because I think what when I look back and, and so much of the book and the conversations that Amanda and I have had have been tracking this kind of stuff, like the molecular makeup of all these moments and these patterns in our lives. I think I would come to a point at a party or a dinner or a meeting or whatever where I had had just enough to drink that if I went home, I was going to be lonely and weird and melancholy. And so I chose to just keep going, you know, like you're going to go home and feel odd and estranged, or let's just get so blitzed that you go home and pass out. And now I can decide to leave and know that whatever I take back from the party, there's still lots of emotions um, from any event, from any social interaction, but I'm more peaceful. I can handle it. I can do the bubble bath. It's a different, it's a different kind of going home. Yeah. And I can think of specific instances where we went home and texted each other. Like when I I was at a writer's conference and said to everyone, oh, let's meet at this place. And a famous writer said, what are we doing here? Let's go to the bar. And I was left alone. And I remember sitting and texting Jardine and saying, this is what the author said. And it made me feel wrong in every way. Like I was, you know, a loser or whatever. And just having someone to say, oh, how rude. Or, you know, I gotcha. You know, you're doing the right thing. And I actually, I think I ended up going to the bar and saying, well, I'm just going to go. That was something like Jardine and I kind of worked out. Well, I can still go join them and put aside those feelings because there probably was something going on with this person that had nothing to do with me. And then Jardine, I remember at some fabulous film events of famous people texting me just like, hey, I'm here. This is wild. Whoa. Yeah. I love that (laughs) you guys are such good friends because I mentioned that the episode that's coming out right before this is with my sober bestie on finding friends in sobriety. And it is a game changer to have that person that you can text. You know, I mean, I remember being at work events, happy hours, and I went, you know, I ordered like trying to be all subtle. I was like at this big table and I was like, okay, can I have a ginger beer? And the waitress was like, you know, that doesn't have alcohol in it loudly, like stopped the ordering. And I was like, yes, I know. She's like, I just don't want you to be upset when it comes and there's no alcohol. I was like, are you effing kidding me? And so I went to the bathroom and I'm texting Ingrid and it just helped so much because I got to be like, how can you believe this happened to me instead of, oh my God, I'm humiliated. What do you think? Like, what are these people thinking of me? Jardine, do you remember the Perrier? (laughs) We were at the San Antonio Book Festival, all dressed up in this fabulous hotel and with a lot of writers who were drinking. And we ordered a bottle of Perrier with two glasses. And the waiter came all excited with like a $300 bottle of Perrier Jouet champagne. And we had to be like, "Uh, no, sorry, (laughs) the $2.99. Perrier. But you know, with when we're together, it's just funny alone. I mean, it's not like I would have drunk the champagne, but it definitely would have been awkward with a table. It was hilarious. But it was hilarious. It's funny too that, like, it is. I was just talking to a friend last night who's going through a crisis, and for the first time ever, she has people that she can reach out to for help instead of like stifling it all and being embarrassed by what's happening. And And she said more than anything in her new sobriety, it's been asking for help, just reaching out and being like, oh my God, this is happening. I don't know what to do. For a lot of us, that's really foreign. And it kind of is a game changer, like 
to just simply say, like, can you text me back right now? Like, I need you, you know? I think there are people where that might be more um, comfortable and they've done it a lot, but for a certain category of us, that is foreign and weird and, um, and sort of magical once you start doing it and you realize people love you and want to help you. It's very healing. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Yeah, I feel like that's something that most of us, like I know myself when I was drinking, I never did. I tried to put on this happy facade of like overachieving and I was people pleasing and I was honestly overcompensating and never revealing struggles because I didn't want anyone to look too deeply beneath the surface. I, because I was so trying so hard to hide how much I was drinking, probably because I was afraid someone would tell me to stop. So I didn't reach out for support and you get so used to that when you're quitting drinking because you have to, you know, and get support. And so it just becomes like a muscle you exercise and all of life is so much easier. And Also, it's putting aside the shame of needing help. And we've spoken about this, but I joined the BFB under a fake name because that's how I felt comfortable being able to reveal, like, just what, just as you were saying, Casey, that I was lonely and hurting and confused and issues in my relationships and friendships, I still don't really feel comfortable talking about that with very many people. And that's okay. It worked for me. And I've advised some people on the BFB who say, I feel uncomfortable here. I say, you know, I kind of, I just say, you can have a fake name. And that's the whole point of the anonymity of AA. But it's hard for me now with the book coming out because even saying that I'm proud of my sobriety is saying I couldn't handle alcohol and I messed up and, and that's hard for me to say publicly and that I needed people. And yeah. And we talked about hard. vulnerability hangovers, you with the book and me with launching the podcast. I mean, you post it out there because you know, it's going to help people and it is your truth and it is your story. And yet you're afraid that people are going to judge you for struggling with this. And, you know, even when people are like, oh, you had a drinking problem. And I'm sort of like, well, I haven't had a drink in four years and you were drunk last weekend. So let's, you know, I'm not judging you, but come on. Like, no, I, I actually don't drink. So therefore, you know, I just don't mess with it. I did say that when I spoke to my kids, because one of my sons said, oh, can I read The Sober Lush? And I said, sure. And then I thought, ah. So I said, you know, let me talk to you a little bit about um, when I quit. And it was so wonderful to say the things I had struggled with and then to end the story, at least today, with, and then I quit. And now I'm proud of myself. And that was incredible. Yeah. Because working through the shame was a lot of the pain of my 
beginning sobriety. And I think why I went back a few Mm -hmm. times, why I went back out, because when I quit, I'd had to say, you know, yeah, when I was wasted at that event or whatever, that was not okay. And if I kept, if I went back to drinking, it was like, oh, we're all doing this. This is how it is. But I had to work through like, that wasn't okay. I am ashamed of that. And I'm using that shame to fuel a new life. Yeah. But that was hard. It's interesting too. I think a lot of my shame overlaps with that. And then I had to identify another part of it, which was almost a shame about being sober and being uptight and being a square and drawing attention to myself and what I'm doing and, and fearing so much that people might think that I feel that I'm superior, that I almost didn't do the thing that would be good for me. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, he's like, Oh God. Like your mind is people pleasing. like cycles. And I'm like, how about I just do what I know is good for me, take good care of myself so that I can love people even more. Like I thought it was in some way um, narcissistic to be sober or self-indulgent. And I'm like, (laughs) really? Eventually I came to the conclusion, like what could be more selfish than getting wasted all the time and being useless for the whole next day? Like, I'm, I'm better. This isn't, this isn't me being selfish to take care of my, this was a huge reeducation for me to realize it's not, it's not selfish to take care of yourself. You actually have more to give on the, on the other end, you know? And that's part of it. You're so worried or so many women are worried about what other people are thinking of you. And I mean, that can get so twisted, right? Like if I quit drinking or I'm going through life without drinking, people are going to think that I'm judging them for their drinking or that I'm boring or that I'm somehow superior. And it's crazy the way our minds work and kind of keep ourselves stuck for a long time, not based on what's right for us, but what we perceive other people might be thinking. And my favorite quote is like, you know, don't worry, stop worrying about what other people think of you. Most people don't even know what they think of themselves. So true. And that's, you know, and that's a lot of what we came back around to with these chapters in the Sober Lush. It was sort of, um, what do I want? I didn't even know. I didn't know who I was, much less what I wanted. And so, Answering though that question became key to staying sober yeah. for me. You know, I just couldn't do the same things without wine. I was drinking because they weren't the things I wanted to do. Yeah. And the idea, like, if you need to drink to tolerate something, maybe you shouldn't be doing that thing. Like, that's a mind-blowing thing for me. Yeah. And we also, it's interesting that Jardine and I met when she had been sober for a while and I was newly sober. So I was learning it was okay to say no to everything. Like I just stayed home. No, 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 not doing anything. And I thought that's empowering. That's what I need. And then it was wonderful to see that Jardine was at a stage where she was saying, okay, well, how do I want to start venturing out in the world and getting wild and, you know, making some more connections. And that was I, I was terrified actually watching you do that because I was like, why would anyone ever want to go out you, again? You know, chronicle those stages because you just have to go through them. There's no way out but through, you know. And if I could tell my younger self yeah. something, it would be to relish those stages. Like love saying no when when you can, it, uh, even though it's not always going to be pleasant or easy. Just know that it's a piece of a journey and it's not the end all be all. And um, And yeah, I think a lot of times you have to make that little shell to protect yourself while you incubate a new life. And then you don't need the shell so much anymore and it can kind of fall away. I love seeing that the the phases that people go through are so common and it's so powerful to say, this is normal and trust the process. Like this, you will get to the other side. And I love that your book is about the other side. And I have to tell you, I loved so many chapters in the book and segments because every single one I wrote, you guys, every single one resonated with me and brought up so many memories. My favorite one was what about Rome? Because traveling is my absolute favorite. And 
I went to Venice and Croatia at four months sober and just, it <gasps> blew right. my mind. Um, how can you go to Italy sober? And at the same time in your, what about Rome? It, it's so true. You wake up to so many things that you had just ignored when you were drinking and hungover. You know, my husband and I used to drink a carafe of wine each at three in the afternoon in Italy, you know, quote unquote, go asleep, take a nap, pass out is what it was. Wake up late, miss the whole afternoon and be hung over the next day. And so talk about what some of those experiences were when you travel without drinking. I mean, some of my first experiences there, I think that I divide things into two categories. One, we're going back to the old places where I only knew how to party. So by the time I got sober, I lived in Austin, but a lot of my like heyday was spent in New York. So going back and getting acquainted with a whole new level of that city was fascinating. And that's such a great city to, of course, my mind, the default was you can't go back there. You don't know how, there's nothing to do there but party. It's the city that stays up all night, et cetera. But the beauty is it's the city that stays up 24 seven, there's so much to do there. So like, even though I lived in Brooklyn and Manhattan for 10 years, I never went to certain museums. I never walked across certain bridges. I never met certain people. I never hung out with certain friends very often. So it was kind of like a, not a redo in that I erased the first version, but it was finding a new layer and dimension of this place. And then Amanda and I would talk a lot about more the vacation journey trip traveling um, that I think we, we both agreed was really hard to figure out. Um, but so, but so exciting when we did that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I'd love to. I mean, first of all, I wanted to say that I I still see this on the BFB, like once a month, someone will say, okay, I'm in for getting sober, but I can't do it when I go on vacation. Like how it's, it's like they can't conceive of the sober life because they have this trip coming up, whether it's an all inclusive, um, that's a big one. And also just places like Italy, exactly, where basically drinking is, seems to be a part of the menu. And Casey, when you were talking, I was thinking about when I went to Cinque Terre during my last drinking year, which I'm kind of glad I did it that way. But I remember sitting at a beautiful cafe, having, you know, the second bottle of wine with lunch and just crying and crying about things I can't even remember <laughs> now. And so it's kind of great to look back and be like, yeah, well, that was a waste of a day. I mean, that was like the ultimate waste of a day. Um, and there's so many trips. I remember my first sober trip was to Tulum and my husband and I were sitting in a restaurant on the beach and the waiter came and I ordered Perrier and this is something Perrier water. Um, and this is something my husband and I have, have had to work through a lot because we both used to drink a lot. And I remember when he ordered Perrier as well, just feeling this ease in me, like we're going to be okay we're going to connect and have a beautiful night. I'm doing this just kind of, we say this a lot to each other. Like we're doing this. It was, it seemed revelatory. Yeah. It sounds like not a big deal. Although it was like the craziest thing in the world to even conceive that we'd be away from the kids in Mexico and we weren't drinking constantly. Yeah. And then, um, I also went back to Italy sober and, um, and, I just remember in Mexico City booking a bike tour of the city. They closed the streets once a week or something. And that was inconceivable. First of all, why would anyone want to get up and do a bike tour? But I remember, you know, having an early dinner and then there was a little cafe that had hot chocolates. And here were all these adults sipping wonderful hot chocolates at this cafe. And then in the morning, we biked through the streets, you know, and the sun was shining in Mexico City. And it was like, yes, this is it. I'm back. And so much better. Yeah. I remember, so when I went to Venice, it was so hard because I, you know, my husband and I like to drink together. And it was just an entire, you know, and I was in early sobriety, like 12 weeks since quitting drinking. But I got up early in the morning, I love to take photographs. 
and walked around Venice at like six in the morning before everyone was up taking all these incredible deserted photographs of the canals. And to me, that was like, wow, this is so beautiful. And I also, I've started this since quitting drinking. I take in my own mind, all the money I used to spend on alcohol and I buy myself incredible jewelry everywhere I go. And that's amazing because, you know, I just love it. So just amazing necklaces. And I also took a bike tour in Amsterdam. And that was, again, just beautiful and wonderful and so much fun. You know, all those memories that you just missed. And the other piece that I just wanted to mention is that you don't have to know how you'll do Rome when you first get sober. You know, I kind of let that question linger. I think I sort of thought, well, you know, in in Rome, I'm going to drink. And then it wasn't till I got there, as they say, one day at a time. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, and it was okay to leave that question hanging. You could still get sober and not know what you were going to do at your college reunion in six months. You know, there was, and and you you literally hear people saying, well, I'll quit after that college reunion. But definitely that's where, you know, I think a lot of the book too is looking toward what, people that were always hiding in plain sight, like friends that I wasn't paying attention to, what they were doing, how they traveled. Like I definitely have a class of friends that I call born moderates who just never like alcohol is just not, they don't care. You know, they'll have a half glass of something because it tastes good and leave it on the table. I'm like, Oh my God, yeah, you're a space alien. Um, And we call them normies. Do you call them normies? Normies. Yeah. Or, uh, and, yeah. and um, I think a lot of what, again, I wish I could have done younger or earlier in sobriety is look to see what certain people were doing, how they went to Rome, as opposed to, I not only would drink through a trip, I used to think it was necessary to drink the whole night before a trip. So like every single airport experience I had until the age of 40 was like, missing the flight, you know, going to the wrong airport or you name it, or like barely, barely getting to the destination. I don't know why. Um, And a version of looking around to see what other people are doing is the dorky practice of Airbnb experiences. I'm sure one day we'll get to travel again, but in the meantime, I just dream of the bike tours and I would sign up. The last time we went to Mexico City, I signed up for like three different Airbnb experiences, like private art gallery tours. Yeah. And um, you just lean on other people and say, show me your city or show me how to do this. Like, um, I think we often think we're going to have to figure out Rome on our own. And there's, there's a lot of help out there if we look in the right places. And at home. I mean, I remember when we would go out on a double date, Jardine, and and I could, especially at the beginning, I could not sit at a great restaurant for hours without drinking. So remember we met at a, an art opening with our partners and, you know, talked about the art and looked at the city and then went for a reasonably, you know, a, an hour long dinner. <laughs> Instead of spending four hours at the table, we spent two at the art museum beforehand and and wandering around and and you that can, was a version too of saying, like, what too. did these nights used to be made out of? Like, I want a long, meandering night. You know, I want to feel like instead of meeting a couple for like a half an hour at Chipotle, you know, you have like a long, grand, rich night. So instead of that being one restaurant and six bottles of wine, let's figure out how to still make it long and meandering. And it involved an art opening And you and Neil walk places, right? Like I remember meeting you for dinner and my husband and I could not believe when Jardine and her partner would show up having walked over an hour, but what a wonderful way to I get there. It longer Even when it was really hot though. It's always, it's, I, I don't want to give up big, long, beautiful nights. You know, I want them to still have like a big kind of unmeasured, um, uncontained feeling sometimes, you know, I don't want them to just be quick. Let's go have a cup of tea and then we're done. And, and it's, and like not knowing what might happen. That was always like a reason to drink. You felt like you were going to have a bigger adventure, like anything could happen and you don't need to drink to do that. And also I didn't remember 
a lot of nights. Like, I don't know if that happened to you guys, but I was the queen of like pretending that I remembered part of the night and kind of being like, shit, what did, what did I say? Or I'd go to bed so early because I started drinking so early and I'd miss half the night with my friends. I was the queen of like getting extreme, expending two hours talking (laughs) to a random drunk. And especially if it was in Italy, it was like, I'm commuting with the locals because I talked to one guy in with bad, you know, translation wasted, you know, why? And I would do that all the time and think, Oh, I really got to know that (laughs) random guy or woman. And like the value of that, it's great to connect, you know, but it was conversations that were circuitous and just nonsensical. And once in a while, you know, I was about to say once in a while, you'd keep in touch. Yeah, actually. Yeah. No. One of the things I wanted to to talk about was both of you write really vividly about how you felt in before you quit drinking and early sobriety, in addition to how great life is now. And I think that's so important because a lot of women listening to this are not, you know, they can't imagine the joy um, that we feel because they're still in that really painful place. And Jardine, I... I was wondering if you'd mind if I read something that really jumped out at me that you wrote. Um, You were talking about the morning after, and you said that you wrote it in sort of the the third person, but um, the way she acted when drunk at parties wasn't as disturbing as the way she would feel in the light of the morning when she pulled herself out of a meager shut-eye, feeling like death itself. The doom was irrational the result of a wrecked nervous system, but it was powerful. And she was always forced to realize you made yourself feel bad. Who would do that? You felt a vicious disdain towards yourself. Yeah, I think that was my, so, you know, in, in discussions about, do we call ourselves alcoholics, each person making their own choice about that. I kept running up against this like after school special version of an alcoholic and telling myself I wasn't that I hadn't lost my job yet. Um, I hadn't crashed my car yet. And for me, it was realizing you make yourself feel so bad, so ill, you know, not morally bad, not necessarily even just emotionally bad, but physically so ill, so frequently that that is a dysfunction in and of itself. It almost reminded me of seeing something that to me is a concrete sign of distress, like when people cut themselves. It was self-abuse. It was hurting myself over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And that's what let me finally say to my therapist, like, I'm ready to go to an outpatient. I'm ready to cross over. I would wake up some mornings, and if I hadn't known that I'd been drinking and doing drugs the night before... I would have gone to the hospital because I felt so bad that it was so alarming. But instead I was like, Oh, I'm over again. And I got used to feeling that level of bad. And that's crazy. (laughs) You know, that's, I mean, the definition of doing the same thing and expecting different outcome, you know, it, it depends on everyone's experience, how we each arrive to that place that opens the door where you're like enough, this is insane. But that for me was, it was the mornings after. Yeah. And the idea of just being sick and tired and being hating sick myself and tired. for it. I was like, you don't deserve to feel this bad. And then on top of it, you're so mean to yourself about it. So it's like double punch yes. every time. I remember reading somewhere when I was taking one of the 10,000 <laughs> quizzes about if I was an alcoholic <laughs> starting when I was 15. And it said that that heavy, awful doom what afterward is a symptom of an alcoholic that I guess normies even when they overdo it don't have that level of despair but I have to say that keeps me sober I believe that I will never feel that way again because it was so bad that I I said the same thing I was doomed like everything's bad. I felt doomed. I felt like I was really going to fuck up my life and my kids and my marriage. And it was going to be my fault. Or I felt like I had, but I wasn't sure how yet. Even if I hadn't blacked out, it was this feeling that something 
awful was looming. I didn't know when or how or it had happened or, you know, and so as I would, I actually was talking to my son about this last night. I would wake him up when he was probably eight or nine and say, did I do oh, anything God. last night? Did I upset you? And that was more upsetting to him yeah. than anything I had done. What a, I mean, I feel shameful. Yeah. Like eight that. or nine that you're kind of ask you're, you're worried enough that you're asking a kid. And I would call that. friends after parties, even in college. Like, did I say anything that upset you? Because I, even when I didn't black out, I remembered everything and I hadn't done anything. And yet yeah. I felt like there was something I had done that I couldn't place. Oh, it's so nice not to feel that way. And it's that walking on yeah. eggshells, right? And I still have people, like there's a babysitter and a few other people that I still feel uncomfortable around because I feel like I have done something I don't remember. Oh, me too. And like trying to pay the babysitter and like, did I overpay or did I stiff her? Like, oh my God, I would Jesus. overpay. I would see checks I had written. Like, sometimes no. in the seven and a half years that I've been sober, like occasionally I'll get the flu or jet lag. And both of those things can um, kind of create that doom again. Cause I associate those physical feelings with this like mega existential dread and anxiety and it's enough to remind me what it used to feel like to feel that way. And it's, and it's so interesting that it's the soul and the body kind of operating in tandem. And it's not, it's not logical necessarily. Like you just said, you didn't do anything wrong the night before necessarily. It's just, it's almost like a phenomenon. And during this quarantine, I've thought a million times, like if I was drinking now, I that plus what's happening out in the world, I would fall to pieces, you know, it would be too much. It's, I'm so grateful now to have this kind of sturdier, more reliable, you know, central nervous system to process the things that are naturally anxiety inducing. I don't have to have this other massive anxiety that I can't name in addition. One, I wanted to ask you guys, I mean, there are a lot of women out there who may be listening to this who are drinking a ton in quarantine and they are drinking because they want to escape their lives, which is why we do it. We want to speed up the night. We want to make it go away. And the huge worries about the health and the financial stability and everything else. So what would you say to those women who are at that really painful place right now? So one of the chapters that I probably wrote the most of is called the arsenic hour and which is what my Savannah relatives used to call the hour that you're feeding the kids and you know, there's bath time and you just want to leave and you can't. And so what I learned is that you can, and even in quarantine, you can go outside, you know, you can say, looking at all the ingredients laid out on the counter for dinner, you can say, pardon my language, like, fuck this. I'm not, I'm not making this dinner. We are, there's cereal in the cupboard. I'm going upstairs and getting in bed that you can do. And that is an escape, you know, walk down the block. I mean, my husband and I, the other night, I just said, daddy and I are going for a walk. And my daughter said, Oh, can I come? And I said, no, (laughs) I love that. No, I just need an hour where I'm not in charge of somebody, you know, and that's what I needed. I never would have said that. And if I had said it, I would have felt terribly guilty. So I would have wanted to get out and I would have poured another glass of wine and stayed right there. And so that's one thing I would say that you are allowed to escape in any way you find possible. I was Um, just thinking, you know, we had a conversation yesterday and we might've already touched on this a little bit, but there is no good time to quit. There's no good time to write a book. There's no good time to have a baby. These are things that people have always said, (laughs) you know, Um, And I know it might seem like it's a, it's a really doubly hard time to do in quarantine, but it might ultimately make this easier and, and enable more growth from this and enable greater survival to try even just a 30 day break. Um, And I just love, you know, in talking about the new library of materials that, people and women can go to there's so much stuff now that you can get in your home you know people that you can connect with 
through podcasts, through online groups, through books, um, through virtual alcohol-free happy hours that cool bars like Listen Bar and Getaway and Sands Bar are throwing. There's a lot of stuff happening that you can get literally from your living room. So it seems like a hard time and yet it might be worth thinking about. Um, it might be more of a lifeline to be sober now. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say is that to anyone who's contemplating that it is that it is very hard for the first few days. It's very hard, but it is so sweet on the other side. You know, you are having a really rough first few weeks, at least first week, but then it is so worth it. And I think I was told that, but I, the more you can hear it, the better. Yeah. It is a miracle of a life on the other just side. Just hold on, you know, hold on to the miracle happens, but also just hold on through the crappy stuff. And as you see that mo- more women are out there who are talking, like we're talking, like your book, um, talking about the joys and the adventures of life without alcohol. And at the very least, you know, not waking up feeling like crap and hating yourself every morning. Just trust us enough to reach out for support to get through those first couple of weeks. So question for you, because I know a lot of women wonder this, like, at what point do you turn that corner? And can you remember either a specific sobriety milestone or a specific event where you saw that first glimpse of the good stuff? It's funny. I've had different experiences. So I think the beginning can be really hard. And yet I've also had the first few weeks be, you know, the kind of cloud phenomenon, the, the, the real fluffy lightness of, oh my God, I'm not sick. Everything is novel and new. Um, there've been a million milestones for me though. The first time I went to a dinner party and didn't worry about what everyone else was drinking, like that finally happens. You know, I stopped the bandwidth that, that whether or not I can drink or not and whether or not I can handle things sober, it just takes up less and less space in my mind. Um, so that was a beautiful one for me. The first time I went out and I was sitting at the table realizing you never once worried about what everyone was going to think about you not drinking here and, um, and, and worry about the whole cycle that we already discussed. Like, are they wondering if I'm thinking that they're drinking too, et cetera, et cetera. I was just free of it. So um, that was a beautiful one. I, I think for me, finding the community with the BFB, finding Jardine, I built this life and I stayed sober, you know, just day to day. And then um, I'm going to get a little teary talking about this. Mm. One of the hardest part for me was changing my marriage. And I think for me, the biggest change came the day that I had enough strength and community behind me to sit down with my husband and say, this is how it's going to be. You know, I really am done and I need not to have booze around most of the time. That's the life I want, period. And that's, that's a non-negotiable because I was terrified about what would happen after that conversation. And uh, my husband said, I love you. Yep. Okay. And I, I get, I haven't really talked about this. So, um, but yeah, now we have this life that I just, I never knew existed growing up. I never knew it was possible. I'm so thankful for every day. And I really had to walk through the fire to get it. But, oh, my God, it's so nice. Every night when we're just, he has a fake beer, I have a ginger beer, and I think, oh, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe I did it. I love that. I feel like that's a perfect place to end this. Um, I would say I love your book. I love all the chapters. I mean, so many resonated with me from picnics to talking about like I Dream of Jeannie and Halloween to um, the drunk girl at the picnic. So I would recommend anyone listening to this podcast, please go get it. Um, It's called The Sober Lush. I'm sure it's on Amazon and a million other places. And if people want to get in touch with you, how, how would they best do that or follow you or anything else? My website is amandaward.com and Amanda Air Ward on Instagram and Twitter and all those and things. And I'm at com, and Instagram is Projects. Perfect. And I'll put all those links and the books you mentioned and everything in the show notes. 
this episode. And the Sober Lush Instagram, oh, nice. because I we just started it. I think we have three followers. So, hey, come on over. I'm going to follow it <laughs> right after this. Oh, thank you. Then we'll have four. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. This has been an awesome thank conversation. So and I know Thanks it's going to help this. so many women. Thank you, Casey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.